You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 110 of a Life in Ruins podcast. Reinvestigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your co-host, Carlton Shield Chief Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, Connor Johnnan. For this week's episode, we are joined by a familiar guest, Dr. David S. Anderson, who is an assistant professor of anthropology at Radford University. You guys should all be aware at this point that Dr. Anderson is a longtime guest of the show, first appearing way back in episode 11, and then again for episode 73 as part of our Ancient Civ series. Dr. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us on the show and how are you doing this evening? I am doing great. I am pleased to be back, and I am particularly thrilled to refer to you as Dr. Gover at this point. I know you were saying you've got a couple of hoops to jump through still, but yes. uh, you are almost there, and you are officially, as far as I'm aware, the first uh, <laughs> the first student I had as an undergrad who has gone all the way through to finish the PhD, and that's a pretty amazing thing. I think... Uh I think you, you're going to be even more proud when Carlton tells you what happened today. So this is May 16th, 2022, and Carlton may or may not have gotten some insane news that we are announcing live. It's, all, it's live on this podcast now, and you'll be the first one to hear it here. So Carlton, will you explain to us what sort of email you received today and you know what what things look like in the future for you? So it was a phone call from Indiana University offering me an assistant professorship of anthropology and curator of public archaeology at Indiana University. So I will get the contract tomorrow. Yes. So uh, as of August, I'm going to be on the tenure track at Indiana <laughs> University. As long as Congratulations. That is weeks. astounding. Thank you. Yeah, I was blown that away. That is really fantastic called. news. Uh, many, many congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, I'm 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 super stoked. I can't I can't believe I'm able to do it. Only two interviews, only two job apps that I'm in. So. <laughs> that is yeah, that was not my record. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll just say, and just for the rest of the people who are in PhD world and that your record is not like that, that he is you know, we're very proud of him and we're yeah. You know, this isn't the normal route that people get and we're very excited for Carlton for his next step. Yep. Yeah. We won't get too sob story here, but we are very proud of you. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm excited, but uh, yeah, I figured it'd Absolutely. be fun to to tell you live, Doctor Anderson, because like, yeah, you're one of my <laughs> first professors at Radford. We've known each other now for like almost almost a decade. I think I showed up at Radford it's, in 2013. So yeah, yeah, you weren't in my first class that year. So yeah, it's nine years. So we're almost there. Yeah, uh, you know, and I, I dropped through Indiana pretty regularly. So we'll have to uh, like bomb your class at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'd, I'd be looking forward to it. I'm I'm really excited to start the next part of my journey. Gonna miss the west but i think indiana yeah, is a really look, good you can look forward to some corn i grew up in illinois i can tell you like flat and corn that's what you get yes a lot of corn uh a lot of corn but uh, you will excuse me if i don't immediately jump to visit you as indiana is <laughs> not 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 the top of my destinations <laughs> to travel to at this moment in time but yeah we still want to go see i want to see you in action i want to see the professor carlton you know yeah we will how <laughs> <laughs> we'll definitely have that. But uh, enough of that. So for tonight, we really wanted to bring um, Dr. Anderson back on to really talk about his knowledge and research into Mayan archaeology and really have that this conversation to kind of just ask him a lot of questions regarding, you know, who are the Maya, where'd they go and, and kind of everything that surrounds such a highly investigated 
culture and in, in world history that it's one of the ones that everyone knows about. And so we're uh, thrilled to have him on. And I'm sure you're thrilled not to be talking about pseudo-archaeology for the millionth time. So yeah, <laughs> let's... Um, it is okay, very strange when people want to talk to me about regular archaeology. I'm like, what? Oh, yeah, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, we could talk about the truth and the real like, things? What? <laughs> what? Like, I don't uh, have to explain to you that people can carve rock? What? Like, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, Carlton, so you, uh, as demonstrated on two podcasts ago, was that two or three you're talking about your experience. You you went down to Mexico. So a lot of this yeah. kind of stems the context of this starting this conversation is that Carlton was just in Mexico and visited. What sites did you visit? And could you kind of give us like a brief re- recount of your experience? Yeah. So I, during that spring break trip to um, Playa del Carmen, as part of that, I've got to visit um, Chichen Itza and Tulum. And I was kind of left wanting to know more than what I got. And that's partly because I picked like tour packages where it was like five things in one day and not necessarily like reached out to my archaeologist in their contacts to like get a personal tour of the museum and everything. I just kind of went as part of every other yuppie that was visiting Cancun on a tour bus to do like Chichen Itza, swim in a cenote, eat some tacos, and then go to a Maya craft workshop with Obsidian. And then that was my day, you know? So it wasn't necessarily that immersive experience into the data, into the culture and into the archaeology. And so that's why we have Dr. Anderson on today to fulfill that hole that was left gaping upon my return. Chichen is, it's one of like the, the third most visited archaeological sites in Mexico, as I understand. And it's, uh, as in Tulum, I think is the second. You said you went to Tulum as well, you were saying before. Uh, and as a result, it's it's highly touristy. And uh, in particular, Tulum and Chichen Itza, you get a lot of the Cancun beach tourists that come out. And it's, it's really interesting because it's great to see people wanting to take a step away from the beach and want to engage with cultural heritage. But there's some problems in some of how these tours end up running. Yeah. So just to kind of get us started, uh, Dr. Anderson, so who who are the Maya exactly? How, how are they described and, and kind of just what what are we talking about here when it comes to Maya archaeology? I mean, this is a great archaeological question because it especially kicks back to my interest in the pre-classic period in the Maya. And so we're largely talking about an ethnic group that lives in the Yucatan Peninsula down into the Guatemalan highlands uh, to the south. This is often referred to as the Maya world. They are part of Mesoamerica in that they have a lot of cultural similarities to the rest of Mesoamerica throughout uh, Mexico. But there's something different. There's something special about the Maya. They, you know, the most famous things that we see are things like the art, architecture, and the hieroglyphic writing. Uh, the Maya are the only cultural group in Mesoamerica that had a true writing system. Every once in a while, people argue like the, the Aztec and Teotihuacan have some symbol systems, and the Aztec system gets pretty complex at some points. But the Maya are the only ones with a true writing system, and so. With this and with the uniqueness of their art, with the differences in their architecture, we can really start to see that they are a different ethnic group or a different cultural group from the rest of Mesoamerica. And then if you further go further into Central America, that you'll see something different again. 
but it's a great like classic archaeological conundrum because as outsiders first learned about the Maya culture with the, the European colonization, and of course they got to speak to Maya people and interact with Maya people at the time and became aware that there was a separate language group and everything going on, but how you push that ethnic identity onto the archaeological record is always hard. Like it's really easy in the post-classic period because it's a lot of the same archaeological sites that were occupied when the Spanish showed up. The classic period is pretty obvious as well because you have, again, that writing system. Uh, then as you start to drift back into the pre-classic, uh, you have cultural similarities, you have material cultural similarities, but there's they, they get different and different. And so one of my favorite questions is sort of say, like, when do we have our first Maya people? We absolutely have farmers living in the Maya lowlands by as early as 1200 BC. They're building houses just like Maya people do later on. They're using pottery that's relatively similar to other periods of time in the Maya history. But did they speak a Maya language? Maybe. Do they think of themselves as Maya or think of themselves as different from other uh, neighboring groups? Probably probably thought of themselves as different from other groups, but it, it's, it's that fun moment where you get to start to push back and say, like, what is ethnic identity and how do we establish it with material culture? And it really is that, that pattern pottery, that pattern. What I love, I love Maya, Maya people, or at least people anyway, have been building Apsidal-shaped houses in the Yucatan Peninsula, which is sort of a an oval with flat sides. Uh, Apsidal-shaped houses are being been built in this part of the world for over 2,000 years. They are still built by Maya people to this day. So you see this like great material cultural continuity, and that builds into some confidence of like, okay, we can say like Maya, you know, Maya civilization starts at 1200 BC more or less. Gotcha. And so are when we talk about the Maya, are we talking about something similar to Egypt, where there's one capital controlling like a vast expanse and they're all Egyptian, or are they more analogous to Greek city-states, where there's an overall Hellenistic culture with individual cities that are, quote, Greek, that have their own territories within a greater cultural boundary? The, the Greek city-state analogy is is far better. It's, it's not perfect, of course, but we absolutely do not have one single Maya capital. There's been some arguments over in recent years about the Khan Kingdom and how much territory they might have taken over. But broadly speaking, we are looking at a culture area where people are doing similar things, but absolutely the vast majority of the time, each individual city is ruled by one ruler known as an Ahau. Sometimes uh, a Kohul Ahau or other grand, more grand titles that they adopt over time. It's really cool though. There's a lot of identity strapped up into each one of these individual cities where people live. And I should say too, especially because there's some old pop culture, old sort of ideas that still float around out there in general information. These are cities. Back in like the 60s and the 70s, there was this uh, empty ceremonial center model. It was this idea that the Maya cities were places where people came to worship, and then they would go back home and uh, in the jungle somewhere. But what we truly know with uh, these cities now is that you know, some of them, most of them are home to 30,000, 40,000 people. A couple of them were probably, like Caracol in Belize was probably home to 100,000 people or more. These were big places, and there were a lot of them. I I've never seen a list, which is one of the interesting things, but there are literally dozens of Maya cities that uh, get going during the classic period. That's really interesting to me. And this is just speculation, but do you think part of that 
city state model and and it existing like that is because you're living in jungle area and it is hard to say maybe harder to interact with folks and you know be a part of a larger government if you're in a rainforest like how do you control or you know like really dictate over people who live in these kind of areas i i think it's far more uh, something that's unique to the culture itself that there's not an interest in conquest there's not an interest in taking over by and large there's no sort of reason people think that they would want to take over their neighbor that's a very western idea basically and okay. we see this at play and particularly when the spanish do show up where the spanish you know try to conquer the maya and they have a very hard time doing it because the Maya have like the, have no concept of conquering basically going on, where it's just like there there's and there's so many different groups and the Spanish don't know how to see the difference. I love the jungle. I love the the monte, the scrub forest that we find in the Yucatan Peninsula today, and it's. I think of this to your question of like, is it just harder to move through? It's harder to move through when you're a weird gringo foreigner like me. I, <laughs> I, I will never like, I have been like outpaced by so many Maya men when we're doing field work over the years, where it's like they dodge, dodge and weave through this forest and I get caught on every thorn, every sharp poker and every stick in my eye uh, as I'm trying to move forward and they can walk a mile in the time it takes me to walk like a hundred feet sometimes. And we truly see this again with this when the Spanish show up, where the Spanish are just so utterly confused by this landscape because there are no hills, there are no rivers, at least in the northern part of the Yucatan Peninsula, and they don't know their way around. And the Maya are running circles around them, quite literally, because the, the Spanish are just lost. And I, I have been that lost foreigner in this forest before. And when you grow up in it, it's it's not strange. It's not hard to move through. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I visited when I was very young, just drove up through there and the density of forest is really intense. You know, it's, it just, but yeah, that's, that's obviously me being outside of my comfort zone. You know, I grew up in Colorado of all places. So it's like, okay, I can walk through these trees and forests and whatnot, but not, not the, the density that you see in uh, out there for sure. And then it just opens up to giant holes in the ground filled with water that you can't escape from. It's just like, Jungle, 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 giant cenote, jungle, jungle, jungle. And truly, I my favorite one of my favorite stories from one of my old directors, uh, Tony Andrews, had you know, told this story, and I had a very similar experience myself. But uh, he was looking for an archaeological site in the Maya world that, like, he had coordinates. This was back in the sixties or seventies. He knew roughly where it was, but it's you know it's not like he had a GPS. But he knew he was close to where it should be. And he was literally hacking, hacking, hacking with his machete until he hit a 15 meter tall pyramid with the machete. And it's like, oh, I found where I'm looking and what I was looking for. And like, I, I've not hit a pyramid with my machete, but I have quite literally walked you know, a couple of meters past, a, you know, a 10, 12 meter tall pyramid. And like, I, I walked past it and I was like, oh, I guess, I guess I'm in the wrong spot. I don't know where this site is. And I turned around and walked, started walking where I come from. It's like, oh, wait that that thing that giant thing that i just walked past uh, this jungle is, or this forest this jungle forest as we call it is um 
it's incredibly dense and it's incredibly hard to move through. And it's, you know, it's like <laughs> old school anthropology here where, you know, Boaz uh, discovered that uh, people in Baffin Island had a bunch of different words for snow. Like it's when you grow up in these environments, you know them and understand them. But when you are foreign to them, they are utterly bewildering. Well, that's like a callback to some of the research you did as a graduate student when you went to go survey the Yucatan thinking it was only going to be like one field season and then you'd like didn't leave the province because you just kept running into more and more and more and more sites. Oh, yeah. Now, there's been some really cool uh, LIDAR work that's come out of the Maya region recently where that has shown how densely inhabited this uh, this forest was. It's gotten some hyperbolic coverage in in the news media, which is great. But I've been sitting here like saying, like, yes, we knew, we knew. Like there there are houses through every square inch of, of this forest. Fair enough. And so, what what time frame are we looking for? From there's like three ways we divvy up Maya time. You have pre classic, classic, and post classic. Yeah. What's the time frame we're looking at? Yeah, sorry, I've been starting to use these terms and not even define them. Uh, the pre-classic period begins, you know, for Mesoamerica, we generally say it starts about 2000 BC, which is when you start getting farming villages. Those farming villages come to the Maya world a little bit later, uh, about 1200 BC, uh, and then continue on. And we get some pretty amazing that when that term pre-classic was defined, it was like, okay, there's just farming villages during this period of time. But by the time we get to three, four hundred BC, we get some big cities in the Maya area. That classic period starts about one, two hundred. There's a, our first Maya collapse, if you will, happens around 100, 200 AD, where a lot of the pre-classic sites are abandoned, or and uh, we have a couple hundred years where there's there is stuff happening, but there's it's smaller. There's not as much happening until we sort of tumble into around five, 600 AD, what's called the late classic period. The early classic is like, eh, I don't know what's going on. The late classic period, uh, for the listeners, if you have seen a Maya temple, if you have seen Maya art, if you have seen hieroglyphs, it is from the late classic period, which lasts from about 600 to 900 AD. And this is truly the sort of height of, of effervescence in art, architecture, uh, writing traditions that the Maya went through. The the second Maya collapse happens, uh, you know, sort of uh, starting as early as 800 AD and lasting as late as 1000 AD, where we have those big cities abandoned again. And we move into a post-classic period. Uh, in that post-classic period, we see some rebuilding. We see some new Maya cities crop up. But again, there's kind of a couple hundred year period where things aren't quite, are pretty quiet. Uh, by the time we get to about 1200 AD, we start to heat up again. And we have a lot of large Maya cities throughout the peninsula and down into Guatemala, uh, all the way up until the 1500s when the conquistadors show up. And the Maya, like many, like, Virtually all uh, indigenous American populations go through a drastic population loss as a result of epidemic disease and the violence that the conquest brought. But one of the most important things to highlight, I feel like, when we're talking Maya is that this sort of pop culture notion that the Maya disappeared developed back in the 60s and 70s. And I still hear it a lot. What happened to the Maya? Where did they go? They're still there. They survived the conquest. We still have 4 million Mayan language speakers living in the world to this day. They live all throughout the Yucatan Peninsula, all the way down into Guatemala. 
virtually everyone I've worked with in the field in Yucatan was an indigenous Maya person who you know, grew up speaking Yucatec Mayan. There is still a large, prominent indigenous population of Maya people in this part of the world. Excellent. And for our listeners who might be more familiar with some North American sites like Chaco and Cahokia start they're abandoned by the 12th and 13th centuries. So like right as the post-classic Maya kind of kicked things back off, there's some population movements up in North America. And so, you know, just because on the opposite side of the imaginary border with this other colonial state doesn't mean that there's not interactions <laughs> between what's going on in Central America and in North America. So it's all. Oh, yeah. And there, there's trade going all the way up, all the way up into North America. The It was just a couple of years ago that they finally did some residue analysis on some pottery from Chaco showing that they were, the, they were drinking chocolate all the way up in Chaco. And that chocolate has to come from Central America and maybe not necessarily from the Maya, but uh, absolutely from there, you know, the chocolate only grows in tropical climates. And so that, uh, there was there was some cool trade going on all the way up. Absolutely. Yeah, I think on that note, I was going to make some joke about collapsing and how this podcast hasn't collapsed after 110 episodes, but I will not. And uh, yeah, this is episode one. This could be the one. <laughs> episode 110. This is segment one. We will catch you back in a second. Welcome back to episode 110 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are here with Dr. David S. Anderson talking Maya stuff, things, buildings, collapse, maybe not collapse, Tulum, cenotes, you know, all the things. I mean, I had a really a question that I guess I w- you would probably get in your archaeology 101 classes. Like, so how do you tell that this collapse is happening and is it because you're seeing sterile layers in, in your digging or is it something different? Uh, yeah, so there, there's a lot of more nuanced ways that we are able to see abandonment of sites in the archaeological record. This is particularly well studied in the desert southwest and whatnot, where you see, you know, you see no more new pottery. You see a buildings being abandoned and whatnot. But uh, that's something that's taken a lot of knowledge to understand in terms of interpreting the archaeological record. We've known about the Maya collapse for a much longer period of time than a lot of other ancient collapses, if you will, because of the long count calendar and the classic Maya uh, just absolute adoration for keeping time like if you you know most people have heard of the maya calendar especially uh, even seems like even my students today still know about the 2012 debacle of like was the world going to come to an end or not the classic maya cities one of the most popular things for rulers to do was to erect stela or these these standing stone monuments and they would carve pictures of themselves on them and they would write hieroglyphic inscriptions on them about usually focused on the ruler's great deeds there's an obsession session with timekeeping on every single one of these monuments. Uh, It starts with a long count calendar, uh, which counts the number of days since the beginning of creation. And after that, it gives you a 360-day calendar glyph. After that, it gives you a 260-day calendar. After that, it gives you a Lord of the Night calendar. After that, it'll give you a moon calendar. And then sometimes it'll give you an 819-day calendar. Uh, And then they'll count the number of days that happen next, and they'll give you the 360-day calendar again and the 260-day calendar again. These monuments are just coded in in calendars, so much so that in the early days, uh, sort of in the 40s and the 50s, uh, J. Eric S. Thompson was uh, uh, one of the early sort of scholars on Maya uh, writing. Thompson was convinced that all Maya writing was calendric uh, and astrology or astronomy, like that's it. And it turns out that it's it's actually historical, like. 
75, 80% of the inscription is a calendar, but the calendar is to tell you when something happened. And so there's like two, three glyphs of like the ruler was seated on the throne or uh, the ruler, you know, married this person. And then like the rest of it is all the dates on which it happened. But the really cool thing, and this is where our idea of collapse came from with the Maya, is the vast majority of the long count calendar dates from the classic period are in what's known as the ninth Bakhtun, which is one of the cycles of this calendar. There's a few early eight Bakhtun dates, and there's like a couple of 10 Bakhtun dates, uh, and that's it. All of a sudden, these people stopped erecting these monuments. And this was, you know, the initial interpretation of these the disappearance of these monuments was, okay, total collapse, the civilization's gone. What we have a better idea of now now is that you know what those monuments were erected by rulers about rulers turns out that it kind of looks like people told the rulers to go away and so instead you know they you stop getting those giant monuments they stop building giant pyramids and the people the population doesn't die or disappear they move out into the jungle and they start living in smaller houses and archaeological survey in the Maya lowlands is incredibly hard. You're in a dense forest or a dense jungle, depending on where you are. Finding pyramids, I was just saying, you can like hit a pyramid with a machete without seeing it sometimes. Finding a little house in that jungle is sometimes next to impossible. And so it really looked like the Maya population disappeared, but what really it became more or less invisible to archaeology, basically. Gotcha. We've used this term collapse a couple times already, and it's like highly problematic in archaeology. And so they were kind of using to describe what they believed was going on in the late classic or terminal classic that people just disappeared as a form of collapse. And so what you're saying, it's more it's not necessarily a collapse of a civilization per se, but it was a change in social organization where leaders were basically kicked out and people voted with their feet like there yeah. wasn't a mass disappearance it was just a change in social organization we we clearly get like uh, <laughs> i don't want to like be pejorative here but it is easy to view maya house these maya leaders as kind of egotistical they they spend their entire times erecting monuments, telling everybody how great they are, which I guess a lot of leaders do stuff like that. But, you know, it doesn't seem too surprising that people might have gotten tired of that at some point. (laughs) Are there some theories why during these time periods, these rulers, is is there stress, environmental stress? Is there population change? Is there something going on here that is causing these folks to be like, yeah, I don't trust them anymore. I'm going to go make my own farm. I'm tired of this crap, you know? Yeah. Yeah. In the early days, there was a lot of hunting for monocausal explanations. And uh, it turns out, of course, there's a lot of, there there are multiple causes and early literature on the collapse talked about it as the collapse. And more, it's become more and more clear that this is a, you know, roughly 200 year phenomena. And so, you know, there's no single cause for a 200 year phenomena in this sort of gradual decline of these large classic cities. There's a few things going on, 
we see to, to stick with rulers since we've been talking about uh, rulers we see a proliferation of of, of place name glyphs uh, so it's like more and more people are saying I've got a kingdom too and it's like and so there are more and more political units that start to crop up like as smaller sites start to claim equal status to the bigger sites we see a proliferation of titles when the little when the smaller sites start to pop up that's when we start to get to some of these like kahul a how terms where it's like no no I'm a I'm I'm not just in a how, I'm a, a son of how, I'm a big a how. And so there's clearly competition among the elites and a proliferation among the elites, which probably stressed the system. You know, it's, it's a growing class divide kind of problem where you have more and more elites who want to erect monuments about themselves instead of growing corn, which tends to cause problems for people. There's definitely some signs of increase in warfare at this point in time. There's some, not many, but several Maya sites have city walls. And those city walls become more common during sort of that late terminal classic period. And the, the real kicker, though, is that there are uh, some nice uh, sed- sedimentary cores from different lakes in, southern, in the southern lowlands uh, that have shown extreme droughts coming and going during this period of time as well. And the, the Maya Ahau, they were divine kings. You know, they claimed to be not just political leaders, but religious leaders as well. And when there are no reigns, and you are both the religious and the political leader, there aren't a lot of other people to blame. And so they take all of the blame and that sense too. And so there, I'm trying to think if there's some great examples of sort of uprising of the, the lower class you know, sort of rising up against the upper class. And I'm not sure uh, there's a, a murdered royal family outside of a palace in Conquen, but it's not clear like the entire family uh, is found in a, a water cistern outside of the palace, like they were all dumped in there after they had died. But that, that very easily could have been elite on elite warfare versus a class uprising as well in the same sort of way. But yeah, it's it's sort of a it's a you know a combination of factors. The, there are droughts, which nobody likes a drought, and people go hungry, and when people are hungry, they get angry, and then we definitely have these you know problems with proliferating elites and rising levels of violence, and ultimately that that tears down. It takes two hundred years, but it tears down this classic Maya system that had been thriving so widely. Fair enough. Now, one explanation I have heard that's often talked about is that. Over farming of the Maya mm. region led to soil erosion and, you know, basically uh, seriously created issues in agricultural output, which caused Malthusian overshoot, which is this idea of civilizations hit this precipice where they can know population exceeds agricultural mm-hmm. yield. And that's, and then, you know, if you don't have enough food, then you get starvation and a whole host of other things that come with people dying in mass, such as famine, disease. And that's kind of what leads to it. Is that still thought of in, in the Maya region as well? Uh, there's definitely some evidence uh, for deforestation and over farming and whatnot. There, that's definitely part of the pre-classic collapse too, where we see some sort of excessive levels of erosion happening. And so clearly that does come into the mix in a certain way. We have a problem uh, in my archaeology with carrying capacity. This idea of you know, that you're raising here of like how much food can you grow and therefore how many people can you support. And uh, to this day, we are still struggling to fully understand my agricultural practices because uh, there's varying ways. There's basic slash and burn agriculture, which happens 
a lot, as far as we can tell. But the the numbers we have today suggest that slash and burn agriculture wouldn't support a lot of people. And so we we know that there's some terracing. Absolutely, in the southern lowlands and in the highlands, there are terracing that's happening that helps increase yield and gets more population. But then there's a lot like the northern lowlands where Chichen Itza is, where Tulum is. You can't terrace anything up there. It's all flat. And there was a big push in the, the 80s and the 90s of looking for raised field agriculture in the various swamps in the region. And some were found. There's like Poltrasser Swamp in the North Belize is the classic example. There's a, some really good raised field agriculture that was happening during the classic Maya period. Uh, this is sort of Chinampa style agriculture that the, the Aztecs were doing. It's incredibly productive. It can grow a lot of food. But it's the same problem with terraces. There aren't swamps over the entirety of the Maya world. There are lots of parts of the Maya world that don't have swamps. And so, you know, it comes back to a place like Chichen Itza, which we started talking about where you went. Chichen's huge. It's like 20 square kilometers. There are tens of thousands of people living there. You cannot terrace it. You cannot uh, do raised field agriculture. You're going to be entirely dependent on slash and burn milpa style agriculture. And the numbers we have today kind of suggest that milpa agriculture could not have supported that many people. And obviously, they can be importing food. There's some, there's great trade systems. We have a really good evidence of Chichen was bringing in trade goods from central Mexico and whatnot. So maybe they're bringing in a lot of food, but Chichen's not the only Maya city in the Northern Lowlands. And so we're, we're really kind of still in a conundrum, especially as I mentioned those LIDAR surveys earlier, we keep finding more and more evidence. There are more and more people living in this part of the world. And that math on you know carrying capacity and how we feed people is still problematic, and so you know anyone loves agriculture and archaeology, we need you in the Maya world. Yeah, and there's only so many people you can throw into the cenote and you know at Chichen before people start realizing that you're you're not producing enough. To, like, <laughs> you can only check the population so much. <laughs> Bad, bad joke. We can get that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that was excellent because, like, that's also you know to kind of talk about the, the Maya region. Like, we've used that word cenote and probably have, I haven't described it. Those are like that whole region is basically limestone, and basically yes. cenotes are these like underground freshwater systems. Many connect to each other. They're extremely dangerous to scuba dive, but it's like this readily available freshwater that's some have sacred significance. And, uh, you know, they're basically just giant deep holes in the ground that you you could throw someone in and they're not getting out. There's like a lot of cool culture, yeah. cultural things associated with them. And then if you go what I did, you could swim in one, which is super fun and cool. But Oh, yes. No, the cenotes are amazing. and They're fun to swim in. And it's like the, the yeah. I, I mentioned earlier, there are no rivers like the northern half of the Yucatan Peninsula. There are basically no rivers because you have this limestone topography where any water is going to filter through that limestone. And it filters down into this subterranean aquifer that underlies the entire peninsula. And yeah, then when the limestone collapses into a sinkhole, then you get a cenote. And so there are lots of small, we, we used to call them pozos, which means well and Spanish. I'm not sure how, you, you know, what the, the pre-contact Maya would have referred to them as, but you have lots of tiny openings into that aquifer where you can safely get water, but then you occasionally get these really large ones. And sometimes like at Chichen, it's a, uh, oof, I'm not, I, I, it's at least like 30 meters. Would you say, does that sound about right, Carlton? About 30 meters from the ground surface down to that water. And it's a straight cliff down to so, it. So 
the one I think the one that's at there's there's two around Chichen. There's actually apparently one underneath a pyramid that they found, mm. uh, mm-hmm. which yeah. we couldn't see. And then there's like the sacred cenote around Chichen, which was closed off. So we had to like take a bus ride ten minutes down the road. But it was like I have videos of it. It's something similar. It's it's a substantial drop. Like I yeah. was winded climbing back up those slippery stairs, like just to turn in my life jacket. Like it was it was substantial. <laughs> Like at least like a four-story drop down in there. Yeah, no, it's it's a long way down to that aquifer sometimes. Yeah, and, my, and from my remembrance of it, I, I I feel like it was like thirty meters or like a you know a hundred feet where you're like, you know, I, I ain't making it up that back up that very easily. You know, not without people noticing. You know, it's it's and there there is evidence right of of human sacrifice and and things being kind of. I guess thrown into there, depending on. I'm not sure on, within the context, but there is stuff that they found at the bottom of. Yes, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I'd have to double check this, but uh, as I understand it, the cenote, the sacred cenote at Chichen Itza, was dived by scuba divers back. I believe it's in the 60s, and it's one of the first times that scuba technology versus other kinds of diving technology was actually used. Because And sure enough, yes, absolutely, all kinds of things were tossed into that cenote. Lots of pottery, lots of artifacts, some gold. We'd, we don't get a lot of gold with the Maya, actually, but there's some gold artifacts that came out of there. And yes, absolutely, human remains came out of there uh, that uh, we do have some people who, for you know, either willingly or, or some one way or another, uh, were you know, ended up jumping into or pushed into this space, too. So also clarification. And I, maybe not a clarification, but people talk about like Olmec and Maya Jade, but isn't it true that Jade only comes from a specific region in China and what they have <laughs> down in Central America is not technically Jade? That is my total understanding that uh, from a mineralogical, geological perspective, uh, it is not jade. We do have several sources, uh, at least two or three sources, if not more, of greenstone or jadeite or serpentine, but it's often referred to as jade as a sort of a general overcast. But uh, as I understand it, mineralogically, that is incorrect to call it jade. It's like saying mm-hmm. something not made in the Champagne region of France. That's like bubbling exactly. wine. That's, that's you know, exactly. It's not made there. It's technically not Champagne. It's kind of the similar. Well, if it's not in China, it's not technically Jade, right? Actually, Actually, one of my favorite artifacts comes out of the, the Chichen Cenote. Uh, there's, since you brought up Olmec, it, it sparked my memory. There's a, an Olmec carving in Jade or Greenstone or Serpentine that came up out of the Chichen Cenote. Uh, and from stylistically, it seems very obvious that it is Olmec. Uh, Olmec is a culture found in the Gulf Coast, Coast of Mexico that dates back to that pre-classic period. Uh, Chichen Itza is very much a late classic, if not post-classic phenomena. So there's, you know, a good... Two, almost 2,000 years between these sites, but there's an Olmec object that came up out of the cenote, and it very clearly has Maya hieroglyphic writing carved into the back of it. And so you have a, an ancient object that curated, interacted with, and written on by uh, Maya scribes that ends up getting donated into that cenote as well. So was it like the site number? So we're just witnessing the first archaeologists yes, yes. Know, in the mind. <laughs> oh, this was found on this date on over here. And then, you know, to preserve it, you toss it into the water because yep. water it preserves underwater. That's going to preserve the jade. It'll be good. <laughs> I think on that note, we're going to end this segment. This is episode 110 and we will be right back. And welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed the sweet, sweet sound of our producer, Chris Webster 
and all of his advertisements. We're back here with episode 110 with Dr. Uh, David S. Anderson. And uh, we kind of wanted to chat, get into now what we were mentioning at the beginning of the episode, kind of about cultural heritage and reflect upon the the trip that I had. And something that kind of like caught me off guard, like right off the bat, I mean, I, I maybe right off the bat's not the right, right word, but like on our two and a half hour bus ride from Playa del Carmen to Chichen Itza, the tour guide like gave us a spiel to set the stage for what we're about to visit. And there was like interesting facts that we learned about like the antiquity of the Maya from like, you know, going because Maya would go back as far as 10,000 BC. And I was like, that's a really neat way to connect contemporary Maya culture with, you know, Paleo Indian components. Like that's fantastic. But what really grabbed me and what I was super excited for is to go to the ball court. Like that's what I wanted to see. And I, and I'm like standing in the ball court, like, just taking in the majesty of it. And the tour guide says, so this isn't a ball court. Like, would you want to bounce a ball on these precious <laughs> stones and break them? And me and my partner who's also an archaeologist. Like, we looked at each other like, this is the ball court. And he's saying it's not a ball court. Like, I don't like my brain broke. I was like, I don't what, wait, what? But it's right. I see them <laughs> like, and he's talking about the dynamics of like, well, do you really think you can hit a ball with your hips that high? And he, and he talked about modern ball games and how it's played on the ground. I was like, wait, and made me, made me question myself. So I, I and that was kind of had me thinking a lot and reflecting on, on the experience of, was that a ball court? I, I guess like I was really just like thrown, really thrown off kilter. I was like, I thought I was an expert in this kind of stuff or at least knowledgeable. And what I did find interesting about the trip is that he did claim to be, he said he wasn't Maya. He was a different, he was ancestral to a different group in the, in the basin of Mexico. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the name, not Tlosh. I think he, I think he mentioned Tlosh Colin. Okay. Which I think is what he said he was. Yeah, and he would talk about. Yeah, he was like, "I'm Tlash Khan, I'm not Mayan." But they always made sure when we went to Chichen Itza, was like, "Listen, we're going to a Mayan, our artisanal Mayan shop later. Don't buy any of this Chinese crap here. Wait till later." And then, like, when I went to my trip on uh, to Tulum the next day, it was like the same artisanal Mayan products in like there. I was like, okay, and. uh so maybe it wasn't, it was, you know, it's part of an industry. You're supporting local economy. They're selling, yeah. an, they're selling an experience. That's yeah. the purpose of it. It's like Disney world. They're, they're selling you the experience of being at this place. I mean, still it was like 200 bucks. Like it was still uh, like the whole day was $200 to book, you know, like it was relatively super cheap for something I would have done here in the States. So having your authority, one, was that ball court actually used for ball games at Chichen Itza? You know, it is actually questionable. The, my question on it is not about like, it would have been fine. It's stone. You can bounce you know, rubber off a stone and it won't really hurt the stone. The funny thing about the quote unquote great ball court of Chichen Itza is that it is at the at, at least twice as large as the next largest known ball court anywhere in the Maya world. There is clearly variability in how this game was played because uh, all the courts are different sizes. All of them are slightly different you know, angles to the, the banquetas on them. Some of them have rings. Some of them don't have rings. Clearly, there were different ways to play this game. But scaling any game up twice as large as the, the next largest known court is absolutely going to be hard, if not impossible. I, I tend to think of that 
that great ball court at Chichen as more ceremonial? Do they place? I'm sure somebody bounced a ball in there at some point or another, but I don't think it would have been, you know, this is the thing. This is the shtick. I don't remember if I've talked with you guys about this before. Some of my graduate school research was on Maya ball courts, and we found a whole bunch of tiny ones at little tiny villages. And most of the literature out there about the Maya ball game is elite. How do the rulers do this? How do they play it? There's depictions of rulers playing it and whatnot. Was a sacrifice involved? Probably not. What we do know is that this was a real game that people played as a sport for fun and competition. And it was not just the Maya. This is a game that was played all through Mesoamerica. That great ball court at Chichen, I, I I wouldn't say the same reasons he told you, but I would say that, you know, I would look at that a bit askance as whether it would have been a normal game space because uh, it's just so big. And, it, and he, the, the comment about could you get the ball up there, the, the rings, the Chichen ball court has rings uh, that are really high. And so, yeah, that would be hard. And one of my favorite things to do, by the way, is to take students and make them try to play the Maya ball game because you have to knock it off your hip. You can't kick it or touch it with your hand. And I love like watching students try to like fumble a ball around and knock it back and forth off their hip. Getting it all the way up to that hoop would have been high, but we don't know that the rings were used for scoring. Like there's a really common thing like, look, it's a ring. It's like a basketball hoop or something like you throw it through there. You score a point. The only really comment we have that I'm aware of about the ring, it comes from Diego de Landa, who was a Spanish priest who, by the way, burned a whole bunch of Maya books as well. But he wrote his own book and he mentions, I'd have to double check the exact wording of this, but it's uh, something to the effect of like, if the ball goes through the hoop, the game ends. And some people took that to be like, you know, you scored a point, that team won. But you could also read that to be a, oh my God, the ball went through the hoop. Stop now. We're not playing anymore. And so it's like, yeah, like the, the fact that that ring is so high in Chichen doesn't really bother me because I don't think that that was necessary. Because like I said, there are lots of ball courts without hoops. That that hoop, you know, it seems a little bit more like a hacky sack. Like it seems like the main point is to not drop the ball, pass it back and forth. Don't drop it. You drop it. That's your bad. Uh, and your team loses a point. Yeah. So I mean, this is the, the thing is that when you guys know, this is like interpretation of archeological materials is hard and there's not one set answer more often than not. I mean, there's some, you know, some good things that we have, some chronology we can dial into and whatnot. Uh, and it's, it's a struggle to find good information about these sites. And the people seeking out tours guides usually are the ones who want more information about sites. And there's a general struggle uh, of, you know, what is a good way to tell a story about these sites? For sure. And I I do want to make the comment to create like a modern day analogy, like modern U.S. baseball stadiums Mm, have variability. Not necessarily like one is double the size of all the others, but, you know, you've heard about like the green wall at at the Cubs. Like there is variability in, in modern day baseball fields in terms of distance, height. And so it's not unheard of to have variability yeah. in your playing field. I love the um actually I grew up in Chicago and so Wrigley Field in Chicago if I got this right if you if the ball sticks in the ivy wall it's an automatic double I think uh like if the ball like sticks in the ivy I would, uh, I would not be surprised if that that is the case it's like, like a ground rule double or whatever they call it yeah yeah you gotta you gotta have house rules but yeah imagine a baseball stadium that's twice as large you can't, you can't play the same game now that's isn't that cricket? I mean, <laughs> but I want to I want to say so. I think it's it's interesting the vastly different experiences we had at Chichen 
because of the knowledge and because of the training that we had. So I went when I was very young and I was just amazed. Everything was exciting. It was cool. I was just there to be excited by archaeology and enjoy it for what it was. I, you know, maybe if that date was wrong or maybe something that there was some a different interpretation that was more popular about one piece or another, you know, that wasn't very important to me, but it's like, as we age and as we learn more and get basically too much information, we get to this point where we start asking these questions. Like you're asking Carlton, we are like, mm, I'm pretty sure I know that. Or like, <laughs> you know, it's this, it's, it's a really interesting experience and we're almost, we are almost ruining archeology span for ourselves <laughs> by doing oh, yeah. that and taking that amazement and the wonder out of it. I will say, like, I, I could definitely tell my tour guide had an agenda. He knew a lot about the astronomy and how the alignments worked. And, like, so that was his thing. But someone asked a question about ritual sacrifice. And he was like, no, no, no. Mayans didn't practice warfare ritual sacrifice. The worst they would do is they'd, like, steal a king or a queen and humiliate her and send her home. And me and Lana looked at each other like, really? Is that <laughs> is that what we're going with? Okay, sweet. And so I, I kind of, at that moment... I tuned out and I was just there to take pictures and, and, and do it. And I was getting frustrated with Lana because she kept asking him questions. And I was like, can you just stop? She's like, dude, I just want to see what he comes up with. So she was just asking him a million things about the archaeology just to hear like what his answer would be. And like to his credit, like he he there was no part where he's like, I don't know that he would immediately he would stop the group. Like, let's talk about how they cut stones and be like, they used to glue obsidian together on rope and like seesaw it. And I was like, that's very interesting. You know, like, so he, <laughs> it was, it was an interesting experience, but like every, he was a good tour guide. Everyone else who was mm-hmm. there that wasn't an archeologist, like he had the charisma and yeah. like he sold his story and everyone was like super the only people that we talked to were like me and lana used the nicotine sticks and when we'd have our smokers groups we'd like tell the guy smoking cigarettes like okay let us tell you what this guy just said is a little erroneous and they were like what and that's when we'd have our little circles of like mm-hmm. actually and like huh okay <laughs> Yeah, you know, is giving a good tour and telling a good story is, you know, not always the same thing. Like I can say I don't know. I can, you know, I can say that I don't know the answer to that question or I don't know how they did this or did that. I don't know the purpose of, you know, different buildings at a site, but tour guide doesn't, you know, they're not going to get repeat customers. They're not going to get the kind of tips that they need to support their family and it's I think, you know, as I understand it, the vast majority of tour guides do a, a darn good job trying to present correct information. But if you get questions thrown at you every single day, uh, you're going to say some silly things sometimes. Like one of my one of my favorite, actually, I remember I was at Ushmal uh, and I was overheard uh, someone ask a question of their tour guide. The question was basically like, how big is the site or how far does the site extend from here? And the answer was like, oh, you see that building there? That's that's where the, the site stops. And my, my immediate response thought in my head and was like no that's where your tour stops the site goes for it's like 12 square kilometers it's, it's a big place but it, you know it's they have to live their lives and they have to to be able to you can't I can't imagine this actually. Like I, as a professor, get to tell my story, and uh, you know, I walk into the classroom, and students occasionally ask questions. I want them to ask more questions, but usually they just sit there taking their notes. That when you're a tour guide, you're constantly peppered with random questions, and you know, people want an answer, and you need the best answer you can possibly get them, because or they're going to walk out and, and not actually respond to you in a good way. And like Chichen, I know has a good certification program going on to try and make sure the guides are educated and know what they're talking about but 
Lord, Lord knows I have probably said wrong things in the classroom before at some point or another. And it's, it's the nature of any talk, any job where you talk constantly, you're going to say things that aren't correct sometimes. It's an asterisk for this whole podcast because you know, <laughs> 100, 110 episodes later, yeah. don't believe everything you hear on this podcast. We and try it, hard. Which we do. Yeah. Revolutionary War episodes, number one, is probably the <laughs> case study in like which we just kind of winged it. But I have heard similar stories with like U.S. river guides, like those folks. Mm, like I've heard stories sure. like they'll just make things up because they don't know the geology of the entire river system and they have to answer people's questions. You know, and, and kind of back to that point, anytime you're in a position where you could be uh, a, a guide at Manassas Battlefield, right? And you're going to get a million different questions, a million different kinds of visitors. Like the dude didn't know that day that like two archaeologists were going to be on his tour, you know, you know, mm-hmm. and the same deal. Like I can imagine if you're a guide at Manassas, you might get like a huge Civil War buff who like his thing is the first six months of the civil war in northern virginia and he's going to know more than you and he's going to ask you questions and you're just going to be like i don't know what to tell you dude and just or just off the cuff because you have to have that air of authority as a tour guide you know it's part of the whole system it's mm-hmm. a it's a performance art too i mean it's 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 it is you're on a stage and you're telling a story i kind of like watching people do that at certain because they have these steps they're like okay now i'm going to get to this stage this part of the the theme not not that it's theater but it's this is the part of the performance why i point out this part over here and i think it's i, I think those people are undervalued mm-hmm. in our society or at least by archaeologists in a large part because those are the people who are telling the stories directly more than we are i would say most of the time so i'll, I'll give them i'll give them that one and i had a minor experience of what it's like if you will because I, I was lucky enough to work at chichen for two weeks it was not my project i was sort of tagging along with some people i knew and i got to spend two weeks working uh rafael cobos and uh, uh jeff braswell were directing some excavations in the heart of chichen on the great plaza there and so uh, i spent two weeks helping to excavate a, a building where we could see the castillo or the, the kukulkan pyramid just behind us and the tourists were walking around us the whole time and we had our little yellow tape and whatnot and people would try to ask us questions uh, pretty often and we got so i got classics so you're gonna get the questions like that are you know classic to me anyway you know i remember i had one person walk up and ask like what the connection between these pyramids and egypt were and i had somebody ask someone asked us if they could meditate on uh, the other side of our yellow line and we're like yeah just stay on the yellow, other side of the yellow line and you can meditate that's fine but it's you're you know it's it's not just people asking archaeological questions it's people asking spiritual questions it's people asking you know questions about conspiracy theories and that they're getting peppered with constantly Fair enough. What's some advice that you would give for an American tourist in the Yucatan who's thinking about going, uh, taking one of these tours or visiting, you know, Chichen Itza? Absolutely. Like get a book (laughs) Uh, because there and and truly there are multiple opinions. And so, you know, it's not that you're going to get a tour guide who's going to tell you a bunch of bunk, but you're going to get a tour guide who tells you in different versions of similar stories like like the the ball court like i agree with your tour guide that ball court was probably not used for ball games very often i i think i have different reasons for making that statement than he did perhaps but you get different stories and you get different opinions and it's i think my my students get tired of it but like i assign lots of reading because i want you to listen to somebody besides just me like listen to other people and read what other people think about these topics too uh, and you will come away better for it and it's the thing, you know, it's 
it's hard. Like I know what I'm going into when I'm going to an archeological site. Like I've already read about it. I've already thought about it. Like I, I ne- will never forget going to Teotihuacan in central Mexico for the first time. Cause I've lectured about it so many times and I finally got to go. And it's like, it's, it looks different when you know so much about a site before you show up there. I think absolutely anybody, you know, it's hard sometimes actually the, the Amazon and whatnot are bad for pulling back good Maya archeology span reference books and whatnot. But still to this day, I hold as my standard. Uh, Robert Scherer and Loa Traxler's The Ancient Maya. There are other good books out there, but and this uh, Scherer and Traxler's book is getting a little older. Unfortunately, uh, Robert Scherer passed away six, seven years ago now, and I'm not sure what's happening with the series. But there's the sixth edition, The Ancient Maya, by Robert Scherer and Lo- Scherer and Loa Traxler. It's huge. It's a tome. It's going to show up on your doorstep, and it's like three inches thick, and it's fabulous. But it, it's it's a great kind of book where it's like you you can read it cover to cover if you want. But it's also really well broken down for, you know, pouring through and getting bits and pieces uh, as you're interested. And so you should be reading that stuff before you go is what I would say. Absolutely. And I do have to make a call back to kind of the beginning of my announcement. The first class where ever I ever had a, a professor disappointed in the class for not doing the reading was your chiefdom class, where it was just like <laughs> six of us and no one came prepared. And you were just like, we're, this is a seminar, uh, like you need to read or else we can't like you're just like i don't have a powerpoint we're here to discuss the readings as colleagues and none of you did the readings like very disappointed in us that day and i've 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 thought about that a lot at times (laughs) so i just wanted to thank you for getting that out having having me have that moment before i got to grad school like when i got to those at grad school i was like always did the readings like i know how this goes excellent that's it's so, a yeah. seminar. It's like you want to talk about these things. Like that's the whole point. Like I don't, I'm not. I, I'm an expert on some things, but I'm not an expert on everything. And even when I am an expert on something, there's still stuff I don't know. And that's yeah. It's it's what's what's great. There are so many good sources and good books and good authors to read out there. And uh, you know, I, I, you should always look at alternative voices. You should always look at different perspectives and find out what's going on. I got the hard hitting question. Were you more disappointed in Carlton's YouTube video about chiefdoms or him not, him not doing the readings? Also, um, it was the readings. The the video was fantastic. We got to the end of the semester and it was fantastic. Actually like pedagogically that's that class is still the one I go back to. I've, I feel like it was my greatest success because at the beginning of the semester, I made them write an essay. There was like every two weeks, they had to write like a three page essay as we worked through. And the first one was, what is a chiefdom? And I got like all, all the six students wrote me these like textbook answers. Like, well, the textbook says this, this, and this. And I got these like, you know, very, you know, with all due respect, very boring papers, but that's what I expected. Uh, at the end of the semester, they, you know, they, they, I assigned them the same essay, like, what is a chiefdom? And I got all of these answers that were like, I don't know. And I'm like, I've done my job. <laughs> well, thank you wanna, so much. I just want to say, what is the chiefdom has 4,970 views on YouTube. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, it's it still pops up. So, all right. <laughs> And I mean, this, this is a great segue. I mean, Dr. Anderson, you know, what are a couple of books, articles, or videos that you would recommend for anyone interested in, in my archaeology or archaeology of, of the Yucatan? Yeah, so like that, that Robert Scherer, Loa Traxler, The Ancient Maya is the tome. You want the tome, that is absolutely a great thing to turn to. One of my favorite books, actually, uh, is Cameron Jean Walker's book, Heritage or Heresy, that is about the Maya Riviera, which is, you know, it's basically Maya tourism and Maya archaeology put together, and she asks the hard questions, and you know, it's 
some people have critiqued the book. It's it's not a perfect answer because there are no perfect answers to these questions, in, in my opinion. But like, how do we manage archaeological sites in the presence of like hardcore beach tourism? Like, it's a great discussion of those concepts to at least start thinking about. There's also I, I have to I feel like I have to to push because it's so good. There was a, a Nova documentary that came out uh, recently called Ancient Maya Metropolis, and I was not involved in the filming of this, but I, they let me like consult along the way and like there are hardcore experts in there uh, but they would you know they it's nova they want to double check and make sure everything sounds good and whatnot and so i got to consult on the film as it was coming out and i see a lot of bad archaeology on tv that's kind of my job as i watch a lot of bad archaeology on tv uh, when they sent me the final cut of this documentary it was uh, fantastic and so i was really thrilled and it tells a great story about that the late classic and sort of that rise of of militarism and uh, warfare that we were talking about before and so uh, definitely check it out awesome and where can our, our listeners find you on social media that corn in that kind of world I, I have got DSA Archaeology cornered on uh, Twitter. That is where I am more often than not. But I've got a DSA Archaeology page on Facebook and Instagram. I have not made the uh, TikTok plunge, but uh, maybe one of these days I should uh, go the next mile. Yeah. Awesome. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Dr. David S. Anderson. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at DSA Archaeology, not to be confused with the Democratic Socialists of America Archaeology. Uh, so please go check him out and follow him if you haven't already. And, you know, it's time. Please rate the podcast, provide us feedback, talk to us, call us names, whatever you want. You know, we're here for it. Um, we love interacting with you. David would offer you a sticker at this time. But I will not. I will not offer anything. I will not guarantee anything like David. He's too reckless with that. No false promises from us. Yeah, maybe he'll be back to hear one of these days. <laughs> if you come follow me on Twitter, I'll give you a sticker. I, I don't have any stickers, but I'll find them. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, everyone, with that, uh, we are out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. And if you made it past the post credits section, you know it is your favorite segment. It is time for Connor's witty dad joke. So, Connor, what do you have for us this time? Uh, I want to give a shout out to Talia Farnsworth. Uh, I stole this from her Instagram. Um, I can't remember what episode she was on, but she's awesome. It's kind of relevant and it's going to be like kind of funny, but just, just bear with me. So how does an astronomer cut his hair? He eclipses it. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> that was good because last night there was an eclipse. <laughs> And 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 Maya like their uh, astronomy, right? Eclipses, things like yeah, that. Yeah, apocalypto. There is that solar eclipse. And we just ended the episode because <laughs> <laughs> we mentioned apocalyptica. Time to go. <laughs> This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, 
DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.